Craig Hoffman. It's the NBA Finals Preview Edition of the Hoffman Show here on HoffmanShow.com. I realize that there might be some of you who have never heard this show before, never heard of me before. So if that is you, thank you very much for listening. Guessing the audience is going to be a little bit bigger for this one, doing some new promotional things and also uh, getting some retweet love, hopefully, from our two guests today, Dave McMenamin and Howard Beck, who have substantial followings. And so if you uh, are listening to hear them, we'll talk to Howard and Dave in just a few minutes. A thought on Kevin Durant as well to close the show and his pending free agency. But in the interest of getting right into this NBA Finals preview, I have a concern for the Cleveland Cavaliers. That concern is that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love cannot play in this series. That sounds preposterous because they're both really, really good basketball players. And I think at times are unfairly criticized Um And we want to diminish the fact that these two players, and both of them, Kyrie more than Kevin, um, but both of them are exceptional basketball players, specifically on the offensive end. They can do things that 90% of the rest of the NBA can't. So forget (laughs) the rest of the humans on earth. You know, 90% of the best basketball players in the world can't do the stuff that these guys can do. And in Kyrie's case, from a ball handling standpoint, almost no one else in the NBA can do what he can do. And for his size, some of the, the shooting things that Kevin Love can do and some of the shots he creates, no one else really in the NBA can do at his size. But both of those players defensively are going to present a problem not for Golden State, but for Cleveland. And it is a wholly unique challenge that only comes up against the Warriors because the Warriors and how they operate and how they've achieved being literally the greatest regular season team in the history of the NBA and arguably, if they finish off this championship, the best team ever to play basketball in the NBA. Certainly, it's hard to compare uh, because the game now is very, very different than it used to be. And how does that translate between eras? That's a hypothetical conversation for another time. The point is, nobody's better at 2016 basketball than them. And the list of teams that were better at basketball than them, period, ever is incredibly short. And they've achieved this peak level because they are better at exploiting matchups and exploiting other teams' weaknesses than any team I can remember. There are teams who are so good at what they did. So, you know, the Bulls were so good at running the triangle, obviously, with, with Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and, and everybody, the shooters they had around them from Craig Hodges to Steve Kerr and, you know, Dennis Rodman did his thing and, and, and that those teams were great. The Los Angeles Lakers of the 80s got up and down the floor. From a skill standpoint, perhaps the only team that can really compare to what the Warriors are now might be those 80 Celtics teams with Larry Bird and obviously the skill that the Warriors have in, in Curry and Thompson, what they can do that is so far beyond special is their shooting ability, but everybody can pass, you know, shoot, dribble. Um, and those 80 Celtics teams had that. The shooting was not nearly what this team is. But they had guys in the post who were incredible. Uh, obviously, Kevin McHale leading that group is is perhaps the most polished post player ever. So 
you've had all these teams that are able to do all these different things. But what the Warriors do is simply identify what your weakness is and then use their immense amount of skill, their ability at all positions to pass, dribble, and shoot to kill you. And so it's very different in exploiting mismatches than any other team that I've basically ever seen, any other team that I can remember. Most teams, when they exploit a mismatch, they'll, they'll, they'll try to get a switch. And this is pretty basic NBA offense. And the Cavs do this plenty, um, where they'll run a simple pick and roll with LeBron James and Kyrie Irving, let's say. And really, LeBron could be the ball handler or the screener. But the goal is to get either a bigger player on Kyrie and let him attack off the dribble or a smaller player on LeBron so that he can take him down into the post. And, and the Cavs do it, and it's successful, and um, it's smart basketball. But what the Warriors do is they try to get switches and then put you in uncomfortable positions beyond guarding the ball. It's uncomfortable for a big to have to guard a Kyrie Irving or whoever, you know, pick pick your team and, and whatever perimeter player. Uh, is the best on that team as a ball handler. An opposing big is not going to be psyched to have to guard the ball. But they've done it before, and there's a chance that they can use their, their size and their length uh, to bother a shot or, or funnel help or whatever. What the Warriors do is they get you mismatched, and then they continue to make you guard 5-on-5. Five five. So they'll run a pick-and-roll and get a switch and have a big on Steph Curry. And instead of just then dumping the ball to Curry and having everyone else run to the other side of the floor and let Curry operate, Steph will give the ball up. And then he'll run that big off screens. And now your defense might try to counter by trying to switch back and trying to figure it out. But now you're so cross-matched that there's probably going to be some breakdown of communication. And you're either going to lose Steph which is a horrible thing because it's automatically three points when he reappears magically wide open for three. Or you wind up having three people chasing Steph, and then you've got someone who's wide open for a layup or dunk back door. And because everyone can pass, dribble, and shoot, whoever is holding the ball, or they'll continue to run offense away. You know, They'll, they'll keep guys, in, you know, all five players engaged, all ten players engaged, so that you can't just then try to focus on fixing the one mismatch that you have that when that opportunity comes to make that pass, when you make your mistake, which is going to happen because you're in uncomfortable positions, that's when they get you. And so it requires an attention to detail that, and not to mention an athleticism and a comfort doing multiple things defensively, whether it's chasing players off screens, guarding the ball, um, being able to read, pick, and roll, and be in a different position, say you're a big and you're used to guarding the screener, now all of a sudden you're guarding the ball handler. How do you navigate that situation and do you know your pick and roll coverage from the other person's perspective? Like These are all of the challenges that the Warriors face. And even if you're good defensively and have good individual defenders, not necessarily in a one-on-one isolated situation, but guys who understand how to play in a scheme and are good at playing within your scheme, it's really hard. All of that to circle back to, Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving are neither of those things. They are not good individual defenders, and they do not necessarily play well within a scheme. They're consistently miss assignments. Um, they're not great defensive decision makers for as high basketball IQ players as they can be on the other end. 
and Kevin Love is a super high IQ guy on the offensive end. His, his ability to see a play and find cutters and, and all of these things to, to work his way into rebounding position on the offensive end. Like he's a smart basketball player, but you're having to do these things and at lightning speed. And this is the most underrated part of basketball. And it's a part that I absolutely love. It is why it is my favorite sport. Um, and it's also the thing I love the most about football. I love the strategy of it. Um, a lot of people are, are their thing is the athleticism or, you know, in football, they might like the big hits or whatever. I am infatuated with the strategy of the game. The fact that these guys moving at these speeds can make the quick decisions and be right the incredible high percentage that they are. That's what is amazing to me about pro sports. And no team embodies that like the Golden State Warriors. And it happens both on offense and on defense because they are so in tune with what they're supposed to be doing that they've got these incredibly high IQ players that all know their responsibilities and know everyone else's responsibilities and can interchange. And they make the right decision more than anybody else I've ever seen play basketball. And then you add in the special skills of Steph to be able to go off the dribble. And it's, you know, I think you can easily watch, especially game six and seven of the Western Conference Finals and go, no, they just get the, the bigs on Steph Curry and, and let him dribble and, and hit crazy shots over Steven Adams. Well, part of the reason Steven Adams is on the island is because he's had to chase Steph around. Or on the backside of the play, there is action where everyone else's attention is on clay thompson step just doesn't get to isolate on an island on his own if everyone else is occupied you can set up and this is exactly what the warriors did to the thunder specifically late in game six they were able to have everyone's focus and attention on either russell westbrook or kevin durant because a there's no individual player away from the ball that terrifies you like clay thompson and b the thunder players weren't doing anything to threaten the off-ball defenders the Warriors do all of that. They have all of that. You can't really, like, you can leave Andre Iguodala, but he's going to make you pay for it. You can leave Harrison Barnes, but he's going to make you pay for it. That's what, Draymond Green, same thing. And they're all versatile. And when it comes down to Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving, there's no place to hide. Because whoever Kevin Love is guarding is going to be brought out onto the perimeter and they're going to force him to play pick-and-roll defense, and he's really bad at it. And even if he has one good game, they'll double down and say, go ahead, do it again. And for Kyrie Irving, there's where you might go in other series, you hide him on, like against the Raptors, you can hide him on Damari Carroll. He's not going to make you pay. He's not going to post him up. You know, just babysit him and don't let him get a wide-open three. If Kyrie Irving tries to guard Harrison Barnes or Andre Iguodala, they will destroy him in the post. And by the way, Sean Livingston, their backup point guard for the Warriors, will come in and I guarantee you he will post up Kyrie Irving. Those two guys have to play well. And not just well, they have to be great offensively. And they have to play the games of their lives on defense if the Cavaliers want to have a chance in this series. They, if they can just be average defensively and can be the the A versions of themselves on offense, then they can stay on the floor. If not, 
the reality is the Cavs are probably better with healthy doses with healthy doses of Matthew Delvadova at point guard. And Amon Shumpert and J.R. Smith out there to, to try to be two-way players. And hopefully for them, Shumpert can hit some shots. And J.R. has been great in the playoffs. Um, and then on defense, you know, Channing Fry is better than Kevin Love. And he gives you that stretch shooting. Tristan Thompson's a guy that you want on the floor. Maybe Timothy Mozgov makes a, a return appearance. He was very effective, obviously, last year in the finals. The Cavaliers do have some options. But none of them are the, like the options of the Warriors. So... I'll save my pick since you're all waiting with bated breath to the end of the podcast. But if you've been listening or reading anything that that I've written or said, um, and I realize, again, that some of you are are listening to me and hearing me for the first time, um, I think you can probably, even if that's you, tell who I'm going to pick. But we'll save that for the end of the show. Craig Hoffman. Howard Beck is the senior NBA reporter for Bleacher Reports. Been covering the league for a number of different outlets. Used to work for the New York Times as well. Uh, seen a lot of basketball. And Howard, this year obviously is setting up quite well in terms of an epic finals. You have the best player arguably still in LeBron James. If not, it's Steph Curry who's certainly on the best team. But it's the other point guard that I think is the most interesting player in this series. To me, the number one storyline is whether or not Kyrie Irving and also, I guess, Kevin Love are going to be be able to stay on the floor in this series because of how they play defensively. Do you think, or I should ask it this way, how concerned do you think Cleveland is that those two players who they spend big money on are supposed to be an essential part or essential parts of their big three are actually not going to be able to play much in this series because of how Golden State plays? Well, it's a legitimate question. It's a a vexing one, I think, for Cleveland. And it really speaks to not only the way they were built, uh, the way they they came together, but their future. Because if if it becomes the case that they can't keep them on the floor for defensive purposes, for any any number of purposes, any uh, any number of reasons, it's going to call into question their entire makeup. And, you know, I know it's a heavy thing to say, like, oh, well, if you lose the finals, you, know, you throw it all out. Uh, I mean, they've had serious questions about this group since they brought them together. And making the finals two years in a row is, is, is great. Um, it's, it's, you know, in context, it's not a, a great conference that they're coming out of. But if you can't win the championship, you have to start from – or you have to rethink everything because the Cleveland Cavaliers didn't have LeBron James come back to finish his career, to go to the finals and lose every year. Uh, and the Warriors are their biggest obstacle, clearly, for the second year in a row, and maybe for the foreseeable future. So, look, uh, Kevin Love, Kyrie Irving, both phenomenal offensive players, both below average defensively, and in Love's case, the question becomes, yeah, when they downsize, when the, when the Warriors go small, when they go to the death lineup, is there a matchup he can even handle out there? Can he... Can he be a viable player, uh, you know, in those scenarios. And we'll see. Uh, I think Love has been better this season and certainly the last couple of months. I think Kyrie Irving has been better. Uh, but, you know, they, they until you see them go up against an elite team like the Warriors, you don't really know. Um, I know that you haven't had a ton of personal experience with LeBron because you, you chronicled that uh, in the piece you did that w- you did get to spend some time with him. Uh, the fantastic piece you did on LeBron and Carmelo earlier this season. But you certainly know people around him and around that organization. Um, it's a hypothetical. It's, it's really probably going to be one of the great NBA hypotheticals of all time that really doesn't come up, I think, as often as it should. 
Do you think in an honest moment LeBron regrets trading Andrew or having the Cavs trade Andrew Wiggins to Minnesota for Kevin Love and that maybe as he looks at this Golden State team and wishes the defenders around him were better that he wishes he would have just you know maybe given Andrew Wiggins the the big best crash course he could and lived with that result? Well, it's a it's a great question, Craig. I don't know the answer to you know to, to what's in his mind whether or not he would like that one back or whether the organization would like that one back. It's a fair thing to wonder, though. You know, they had to give up quite a bit to get Kevin Love and Andrew Wiggins. You know, you, you weren't sure what he would become offensively, at least in his in the near term when he was drafted, but you knew he was already a really uh, you know long and athletic. A player who was going to be capable of being a really good to great defender from day one, and especially if you put him with a veteran team and put him next to a guy like LeBron James, who's you know the greatest on-court tutor you could have, that you could see him evolving very quickly into you know a, a very very good player. Yeah, to, to to try to take back the trade or to reverse it and say, well, where are they if they have him instead of Kevin Love? It's it's a really hard thing to know, uh, you know that, and it was understandable why they wanted love. I mean, the, the guy put up monster numbers in Minnesota. Granted, not for winning teams and not not making the playoffs, but uh, his abilities as a three point shooter, as a rebounder, as a playmaker, you know, Kevin Love. There's a lot to like there. He's not the ideal big man defender in today's NBA, but there's so much else that he does for you beyond just being a stretch four. And you know, if all you need is a stretch four, you go get Ryan Anderson or say Channing Frye, who they did. But they did acquire, and it's altogether possible that, that you know, Fry, who's under a reasonable contract for a couple of years, maybe he's the guy that, that serves that role if you ultimately trade Kevin Love this summer. I think a lot, I mean, I think everything depends now on the, the championship. If they lose, I think everything's back on the table, including potentially dealing Love, because there are a ton of teams out there who would, uh, you know, kill to have him as a guy to build around. And, you know, there are teams out there like Boston that have immense packages of, of picks and players. So, you know, the, the moment of truth has arrived for Cleveland, uh, where, where it regards Kevin Love, where it regards Kyrie Irving, where it regards this whole core. Um, even though I'm not one who says that you go to the finals two years and lose, that you're somehow a failure, I don't look at it that way. But if you're a team that's built to win championships now with a 31-year-old LeBron and the window starting to narrow – you have to put everything back on the table if you don't win at all. Yeah, you have to. But there's also power and continuity, which is something that David Griffin will certainly be weighing. Absolutely. It's, it's going to be an interesting, interesting offseason for them. Um, that that first question I asked you about Kyrie and Kevin Love being able to stay on the floor defensively, to me, you know, even if you take out the uh, extra stuff that we just talked about of what the long-term repercussions are, but just in the context of this uh, seven-game series, that is the most interesting storyline to me. What's the most interesting storyline to you from a basketball sense in the next seven games? games wow um i'm not you know i I haven't looked at it at the micro level i don't know if there's any one particular matchup that is is going to be defining Uh, i just think that you know we're looking at a series where the the stakes seem ridiculously high for both teams all of a sudden and it doesn't happen this way a lot of times you a team Mm -hmm. goes to the finals it's always the stakes are always high for for whoever uh, lebron is playing for but it doesn't often happen where you look at it and say both teams, if they lose, there's going to be a, a certain amount of, of, of backlash or burden to bear beyond just losing the finals. I mean, the Warriors set the bar so high with winning 73 games. And 
Curry then going back-to-back MVP and unanimous MVP, the first in history, and they're trying to defend their championship. And so if they lose, all of a sudden it's, you know, well, there's the first championship. Is it, is it now ring a little less, uh, you know, uh, uh, significantly? Does, you know, does Curry's back-to-back MVP somehow, you know, let, you know the 73 wins somehow hollower because they don't win? I mean, there's, there's just so much at stake in terms of validating everything that they've become, and especially because, you know, a year ago they win the finals and everybody's saying, well, they had an easy pass. Oh, the guys were injured. And so I think everything since then has been driving them to this point to try to, to validate that. Uh, and on the Cleveland side of it, there's no question. Every time LeBron's in the finals, his entire uh, legacy, reputation, how people view him is on the line. And, you know, people want to try out two and four in the finals as if it's some, you know, mark of failure. When in fact he's now in his seventh NBA Finals, but five people will they will drill that, and so to me, uh, and as well as what we alluded to earlier, the fact that for Cleveland you don't know what they might become if they fall short, and what they'll how they'll they'll go about uh, you know changing up the, the roster. So I just feel like there's there's so much at stake in this in this Finals aside from the championship. One of the uh, the things that we'll certainly be looking forward to is a news item before Game 1 is what Steve Kerr does with his starting lineup. Obviously, last year, um, changed it up during the finals and, and did so in Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals this year. And I think one of the things that allows him to do that is one of the most underappreciated parts of this Warriors team, and that is the personality makeup. The fact that you can stick Harrison Barnes on the bench and not worry about Harrison Barnes having a diva freakout moment, because Harrison Barnes is just not that guy, and that roster is filled with guys like that do you think other teams are starting to look at that kind of stuff more the not just as how a player fits in a skill level or even in the draft a skill set that they're looking for but the mental makeup more than a toughness standpoint but but as a personality standpoint and also you know do you agree with that sentiment that's a huge part of the Warriors success but absolutely is I think you nailed it uh you can have all the talent in the world and have a really dysfunctional team if you don't have guys who are are selfless who are high-character guys, who are high-basketball IQ guys. And what the Warriors have is a, a perfect blend of all that. I mean, Andre Iguodala isn't just a multi-talented, really great player who, who's you know not an all-star type, but he's you know an incredibly valuable player for everything he does on both sides of the ball. Uh, he's a high-character guy, and he's a guy who, who values the right things and who, you know, if, if he wasn't willing to be that sixth man, in his first year with Golden State, then, then we're talking about a completely different situation. I mean, you talk about Harrison Barnes going to the bench. Yeah, that was a, a, a you know a one game thing, what a game and a half thing. Iguodala did it for an entire season after being you know now two seasons after being a starter for his entire career and, st- and signing a decent sized contract to go there. And when guys like him do that, who are well respected, who are uh, you know veterans, who are influential then it sets the tone for everyone else, and no one else has a right to complain at that point. No one else can. And so that stuff is hugely important. You know, chemistry is, is a really underrated part of, of the, the game at this level um, because talent alone doesn't do it. And, you know, Cleveland is an example of that to an extent. Um, you know, their chemistry has been suspect at times. And, you know, uh, you know James Harden and Dwight Howard have just given us a, a brilliant crash course in you know where you know talent can go really right uh, occasionally they got to the conference finals and then go really wrong and you know no one would doubt the talent of those two but you would certainly doubt their character their overall makeup and the chemistry of, of that Rockets team so 
yeah, the Warriors, you know, guys like Iguodala, Sean Livingston, um, and, and of course, you know, their stars. I mean, Clay Thompson quietly uh, emerging as, as, I think, the best two-guard in, in the NBA. And the guy who, in, in some respects, may have saved that series against Oklahoma because he's the one who got caught fire first and, and got everybody else, I think, uh, comfortable again as they came back from 3-1. And Clay Thompson, there's no ego about that guy. There's, there's, there's no show. He's not putting on. You know, All he wants to do is hang out with his dog. Yeah, and and, and make big shots. And <laughs> he never reacts. He doesn't celebrate. He's a really subdued personality. But the guy is, is a phenomenal player. Doesn't get enough credit. No, I agree, and it's it's a similar formula to obviously San Antonio and their stars who have selfless, but Steph is completely selfless, and um, that's actually caused problems for the Warriors apparently on the road because he wants to sign autographs and do all these things, and the team's like, look, man, you're kind of too big to do some of this stuff now. You're creating like safety concerns, so we gotta we gotta <laughs> dial it back. Um, the star of Steph Curry as bright as any right now. Um, Howard Beck, uh, senior writer for Bleacher Report, host Bleacher Report Radio. What's the best way if people want to get more stuff from you because you're doing videos, you're you're writing, you're doing radio. If people want the best stuff from Howard Beck right now, where should they find it? Oh, that's a good question because it's really not that easy, and our <laughs> site doesn't always our site doesn't always make it that easy. I mean, you can follow me on Twitter at Howard Beck, um, and everything, almost everything I do, I'll, I'll post there at some point. Uh, I have a writer page on Bleacher Report where all of my written material goes, all my all my uh, you know you know columns and, and stories uh, of any kind are all there. Uh, I can't give you that address because it's really long. Uh, <laughs> but, but it looks like there is there is a link to that on your Twitter bio. So there is a, That's true. The, there's a link to my writer page on my Twitter bio, so you can find, you can find it there. Uh, and the videos, uh, they're all over the place. Yeah, so. just, just go to Bleacher Report or go to twitter.com slash Howard Beck, at Howard Beck, and just just start clicking on stuff. That's that's the plan. <laughs> there um, you go. Hey, man, uh, I appreciate the time. Safe travels out to the Bay and enjoy the finals. No, it was my pleasure, Craig. Thanks so much for having me. Craig Hoffman. Dave McMenamin covers the Cavaliers for ESPN. Uh, does You see him all over SportsCenter the next two weeks. Uh, also read him on ESPN.com. You can follow him on Twitter as well, at Mick. 10 m-c-t-e-n uh dave the the first question i I asked howard beck and the thing i spent the first 12 minutes of this podcast on was the defensive prowess or lack thereof of kyrie irving and kevin love what's the concern from the cleveland side that those two cannot play substantial minutes in this series because golden state will kill them (laughs) well that's not a weighted question or anything no i mean Uh, i I only spent 12 minutes talking about why i think that's going to happen so why 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 avoid the leading question at this point well i certainly think if you look at the toronto series there's evidence there that kevin love despite whatever he's been able to do to turn himself around which started with about three four weeks left of the regular season and continued on through the first couple rounds of the playoffs that when he gets benched in consecutive games in the fourth quarter uh, it's not because he was missing shots, because they couldn't trust him defensively. And that's going to be a major challenge in this series. Now, the the good thing, and I guess the reason why the Cavs aren't going to fret too much about it, where they would feel like they're going to get killed, is because they have confidence in Love's backup, in Shannon Fry. They also have confidence that they could do some even more radical things with the lineup. And, and uh, depending on who Golden State has in there, maybe try Kevin at the five rather than the four. Um, and, and have some success with, with that type of lineup. So I really think there's all sorts of permutations as you look at the series and you can say that, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? 
uh, I think the Cavs believe that they're going to have situations where they're putting the Warriors on their heels just as much, uh, especially when you look at the, the explosiveness that Kyrie Irving has been able to get back over these last six weeks. Uh, who's to say Steph Curry is going to be able to do much defensively on him um, as this series kicks off, considering where, where Steph is right now, just five weeks really, uh, removed from a pretty scary leg injury of, uh, of his own. Yeah, obviously they have Clay Thompson who will probably spend some time on Kyrie as well. But uh, as we both know, the cross matches and all of these things, it never works out as you actually plan it uh, in terms of drawing it up on the whiteboard. Um, with that said, how how creative can Ty Lue get, not just from an options? I mean, we could sit here and BS about could they go zone? Could they try this? There, there's a million things that we could just throw out from a basketball sense, but from a trust standpoint with, with his limited time as a head coach and, and maybe even his own confidence. I, I mean, you sat down with him for an extended sit down the other day and, and have a good read on, on Ty, obviously from his time as an assistant the past couple of years as well, but with, with a guy that is that fresh as a head coach and also a team that this isn't the Warriors that just seems to have this implicit trust in Kerr and um, the personalities are, are very different. There are some some bigger egos, I think, on the Cavaliers, um, which is fine. That happens in pro basketball. Like, How creative can Ty Lue get um, without losing the trust of his team? Well, I wrote about this earlier in the playoffs, and of course it's not the same type of pressure of playing a Golden State, and it's not as strong of an opponent, but against Detroit... He went into the series with a game plan where he was going to double, uh, you know, and try to trap Reggie Jackson and leave guys like um, um, uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope and Morris open for jump shots. And but he felt like that was the best way for them to win, uh, win the game. And he the the insinuation was that at some point those guys would miss. And they, they started executing that plan, and those guys, the secondary guys, started making their shots. And Ty had guys come back to the bench pretty upset with him and, and wanting to abandon the game plan he put in place. And he stayed steady and said, no, this is what we're doing. And, you know, they might have lost the battle but won the war. That was the plan he had all along. And then you saw that the guys post game, even though they were upset in the moment, praising Ty for his ability to stick to that game plan and convince them that it was the right thing to do, even in the moment when, when people were frustrated and having a little bit of doubt with what they were doing. And, and I think by having those types of tests already, he will have the trust and the ear of his guys if there's some sort of a plan that goes awry in this series and they have to continue to buy in uh, when it looks like uh, their confidence might be tested. I thought it was interesting when I asked Howard about some of the the love Kyrie stuff, and he even expanded out beyond the series of you know if they lose, do they think about making moves? Obviously, love is the name that would be on the trade block more likely than Kyrie. And inevitably, if they lose some early games, there will be that chatter, and those questions might even be directed directly at those guys. Do you think they are equipped mentally to to block that out and handle the pressure? Because I think at times um, those two guys have have had some rabbit ears and and have gotten caught up in things away from the actual focus of the games. I think it it reminds me of the the quote, like everybody has a plan until he gets punched in the mouth. I I, I think this team's 
confidence is so high right now that I don't think there's any lurking thoughts for Kevin or Kyrie about what if something goes wrong. Uh, now, if things go wrong, I mean, a variety of things could happen. I, I'm not confident enough in the conversation I've had with the decision makers of the Cavs that they would definitely keep this team intact. Uh, but I, I do believe that if they took a long view here and stepped away after the season and looked at what they were able to do from January, what, 26th on when Ty Lue was put in, in place as the head coach and the way he was able to get this team playing together, even if they lose to the Warriors, even if they get swept by the Warriors, I have a hard time believing that trading Kevin Love would give them a an option next season to have a better core in place. Uh, if, indeed, Kevin Love is the version of him that we've seen since midseason um, and since Teron Liu was able to kind of get him going in the offense um, by the playset and also get him going as a human being by his ability to, to get through to him. Um, you know, it wasn't just this meeting in Brooklyn uh, late in the season where, you know, the Cavs lost and Teron Liu called a, a meeting in front of everyone and aired everybody out. And then he told Kevin, like, listen, you're a bad damn effort and you need to play like a bad effort, and that's the only way LeBron's going to respect you. And he said that in front of Kevin and in front of LeBron, and both guys responded well to it. It, 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 it These are the type of buttons he's pushed already. So if you have this relatively big sample size of, of a one half of the season plus this extended playoff run, and if something goes awry in the playoffs, or excuse me, in the finals, why, what would be the motivation to abandon what you've already worked on because then you're back to square one and lebron likes to preach like one of our disadvantages since we came together because despite all of our talent was we are competing with programs like a golden state like a san antonio like a oklahoma city that had their pieces in in place for four or five years uh well if you take out one of the most major pieces of this equation and try to revamp again um then you're fighting the same battle internally that you were trying to do the last two years uh, when right now it appears everything has finally settled and there's a balance between the pieces they already have here. Yeah, no, I agree with that sentiment. I'm just curious because um, there's a lot of people obviously that don't and as that chatter comes up, you know, is, is love going to start not freaking out, but could that affect him? Um, obviously we'll see. They don't have, they're not thinking about that now because as you said, uh, you don't, you know, they haven't been punched in the face yet, but it's going to happen because they're playing a really good team and hopefully they'll punch back. Um, I know the Cavs are not fond of saying this is a rematch because there are very different pieces on their end from what they had last year, but there's a large Russian piece that's on the bench that played well in the finals last year. Do we see, you know, you mentioned Ty Lue's got some options, uh, and they're confident in, in some other options if things do go awry um, that maybe Timofey Mozgov reemerges into the rotation in this series at some point? I, I would be surprised if it happened. I think it would be a, have to be a foul trouble situation or um, they were getting killed on the boards and, and felt like that was an absolute last resort, but I don't think that's the Cavs' intention. I mean, they have a nine-man rotation that has gone 12-2 and in the playoffs thus far. I understand they haven't played Golden State Warriors in the 12-2 and record, but um, I don't think you're going to see much Monica in this series. All right, so what's the path to Cleveland victory? Well, very, very quickly, I know you got to run, but like, if, if they're going to pull this off, how? What's the thing that we're going to look back and say, oh, that's what we missed, that's why they won? I, I think it starts with defensive activity, and because they have 
their perimeter deep defenders, their best three perimeter defenders healthy this year when they didn't last year. In LeBron, Iman Shumpert, and Matthew Delvadova, they need to have those guys put their stamp on the game and, and make the point of entry, whether that be drive or whether it be entry passes, be difficult on the Warriors where they're working a little bit. And then if you do get a stop, you turn a long rebound into a transition opportunity of your own and push. And, and you know, it seems counterintuitive because the Warriors are, are such a good run and gun team to want to play their style. But the Cavs have been playing that style for, every, you know, four months now, five months now, ever since Tron Lu took over. And they've had success with it. And uh, they, I don't think they look at it as, um, you know, we're, we're trying to meet their style. I think they that's they truly believe as their own identity, and so you just stick with what your identity is. And if they can shoot it the way they did for parts of the Toronto series and certainly all of the Atlanta series, uh, they're just as potent an offensive team as the Warriors are. And, and so then again, it will come down to the, the slice of edges on the defensive end. So you know. I, I, I have to pick these series. He's going to make this do it. I picked the Cavs in six. Some people say it's proximity bias I have. I just believe this team is primed, and I, I, I'm a guy who kind of believes in the larger sports destiny of things. I covered the Lakers lose in 2008 to the Celtics, come back in 2010 and beat the Celtics. Um, I, I, I've seen that team, a team like that, um, fester with the, the tough feelings day-to-day that, that the other team would cause them and then have a chance at revenge and, and exact it. And we just saw in NBA history, the heat beat the Spurs Spurs came back and beat the heat. I mean, this is kind of the way these things go. Uh, I understand that it doesn't usually happen involving a team that's 73 and nine, cause that's never happened before. Right. But I don't, I don't think a 73 and nine teams all that different from a 67 and 13 team or whatever the, the 16 team, whatever the math would be. Um, I think it's just, you you got to come back and beat a good team, and, and I, I think the Cavs, I think the Cavs believe they're going to win this championship, and I think that that's a big part of the equation too. Yeah, I have no doubt they believe it, and they should believe that they're capable because they're really really good. And you know, weird stuff happens. Someone gets hurt. There's all kinds of different things that could happen. But man, that team, that team on the other side is real good too. So uh, my my pick is is obviously as you could probably tell by the questions, the other direction. <laughs> Um, Dave McMenamin, read him uh, on ESPN.com. Follow him on Twitter, at Mick10, and you can watch him all over ESPN the next couple of weeks throughout the finals. So always appreciate it, my man. We'll catch up soon. All right, Craig. Thanks, man. Call it a wrap. Call it a wrap today with a thought on Kevin Durant. Then we'll get to the finals pick. First, the thought on Kevin Durant, whose name is actually pronounced Durant. Uh, last night, I... Not, there's nothing on TV. Started scrolling through Netflix and saw that uh, the 30 for 30 on the Orlando Magic is up on there. So I decided to watch because I missed it uh, when it came out about a month back. And it was really, really interesting. Um, a lot of things were interesting. I mean, you, and you get reminded how good Penny Hardaway was and um, how lucky the Magic were to get Shaq and Penny back to back. Uh, and how they barely missed the playoffs in Shaq's rookie season, which allowed them to be in the lottery, and they had the worst odds and won the lottery. So they get Penny Hardway. And uh, some of the stories behind how Penny earned being the number one pick that season. So there's all this great stuff. But the end of the Shaq and Penny story, if you will, when they break up um, and Shaq leaves for L.A., is 
what made me think of Kevin Durant. And if you haven't seen the documentary, um, I mean, I guess this is sh- sh- spoiler alert um, for something that happened in 1996. <laughs> um, the magic is Shaq enters free agency, offer him a four-year, $80 million deal. That's that's not the max. The max was a seven-year, $121 million deal. Eventually, the Lakers uh, wind up offering him that, and he signs with the Lakers. The rest we know, you know, goes on, wins three titles there, and plays for a bunch more teams, and blah, blah, blah. We know, we know the Shaq story. But the thought that you could have Shaquille O'Neal quickly becoming one of the best players in basketball, a completely unique dominant force, who's completely turned around your franchise from expansion garbage to Eastern Conference Finals and NBA Finals appearances, and he's 24 years old, and you don't immediately on moment one of free agency go, here's everything we can give you. Today is preposterous. It's like if the Pelicans hadn't offered that to Anthony Davis. Um, It's like if the Thunder don't go immediately to Kevin Durant on July 1st of this year with A, B, and C. A, max contract. B, one and one, which I'll talk more about in a second, two-year deal, player option. Or C, whatever the hell else you want. You pick, Kevin. You tell us. And if you need some time, and you or you need you want a full presentation, you want to be recruited, whatever you want, we're here for you. That's not what happened with Shaq, and it's just kind of amazing to me um, that that's how the NBA operated as recently as twenty years ago. The thought that one of the best players. Certainly, probably the guy with the highest stock in basketball at that point, um, young, 24, was going to be around post-MJ, whatever that was, that he was not immediately given a max contract. But it was also interesting to hear what Shaq and Penny Hardaway, who left a couple of years later, um, said after, and that they said they wish they never broke up. They said they wish that things like ego hadn't gotten in the way. Um, they wish that money hadn't gotten in the way. And that they should have stuck together and won championships. Penny said he's still not over Shaq winning in L.A. with Kobe. Like, that should have been me. That's how he still, to this day, processes Shaquille O'Neal's later career. And I think all of that stuff really isn't a factor with Durant which is kind of amazing he is on a lot of levels an egoless superstar he certainly has an ego you know he wants to be acknowledged as one of the best in the game as he should be because he is when it comes to winning games and credit and chopping it up he doesn't care he wants to see everybody get credit he's the perfect guy to play with Russell Westbrook because he loves Russell Westbrook and empowers him to be himself. He says, "Hey Russ, do you in all facets from the way you play the game, the aggressive manner in which you go to the stuff off the floor." He loves that Russell Westbrook's been able to to do his thing and become 
a superstar in his own right. Doesn't Durant doesn't feel threatened by that. That's just not him. And it fits perfectly also for the market in Oklahoma City. He loves it there. So a lot of the stuff that Shaq and Penny went through, I don't think is a risk for Durant. But it's just it was super interesting with the biggest story pending this summer being Durant's free agency to see how this played out 20 years ago with a pair of young stars uh, who looked to be destined for championships and instead went their separate ways. Because that's certainly, and, and there's someone in the, the film who actually even said, you know, think Durant and Westbrook. Just like Durant and Westbrook got to the finals ahead of schedule, Shaq and Penny did too, and they got crushed by Houston. Um, Durant and Westbrook got beaten. I wouldn't say they got crushed, but they got beaten thoroughly by Miami. It was it was five games, but it was you know they were they were somewhat close, um, and obviously they haven't been able to get back. Sometimes in this league, you just need continuity. You need a little luck. You need the right breaks. And I think Durant realizes that he's at a championship-caliber place that is running a championship-caliber operation. He likes the people running that operation on the basketball side from Sam Presti to the rest of the front office and seems to rather like Billy Donovan and trust Billy Donovan after seeing how this season played out. So I don't see him leaving. Um, but the the dynamic between the two, and if you haven't watched uh, This Magic Moment, the ESPN 30 for 30, do it and keep that in the back of your mind. As for the team still playing, as you could probably guess with how I started, with my number one storyline, and I talked about with Howard and Dave as well, being can two of the Cavaliers' three best players stay on the floor in this series, clearly favoring the Warriors here. I think the way that the finals format is is working this year, uh, they've switched it back to the 2-2-1-1-1-1 like the rest of the playoffs. Um, If Golden State wins the first two at home, Splits in Cleveland, they can win it in five, which sounds somewhat disrespectful to the Cavs because it's like, oh, five games, that's it? You're only going to give them one win? Well, you know, four of those are going to be, or three of those uh, are going to be in Golden State. It wouldn't surprise me if it wound up going six. You know, they split the first four games at home. Everyone holds home court. Golden State goes home, defends home court in five, and then closes it out in six. It wouldn't surprise me if it goes seven and, and home court holds throughout the series or each steals a, a one game on the other's home floor. Wouldn't surprise me at all. But to beat a team four times in seven games that's lost 11 times all year, including the playoffs, good luck with that. I was on uh, my old college station, Z89, where I used to host a show called Call It A Rap, the inspiration for the name of this segment. Uh, I was on with uh, a couple of really talented kids down there, uh, Drew Carter and Tyler Aki, and uh, they asked me what happened in the Western Conference Finals. And my answer was simple. Math happened. The law of averages happened. When a team's this good and wins this much, they don't lose that often. They don't lose enough to lose a series. So the Warriors won't, and they're going to win. And I feel very good about that, except for the part where LeBron James is a freak of nature and one of the five best people to ever play basketball on planet Earth. That should scare you. He's that good. But 
in the end, the Warriors have too much. They can do too many things, and they actually have one of the five guys in the league who can give LeBron some semblance of problems in Andre Iguodala. I expect Iguodala to start in this series. If I don't know if he starts game one, but I would imagine that's something Steve Kerr goes to. And as I talked about with Howard, that's a huge credit to Harrison Barnes. Uh, but as Howard said, it's the same credit back to Iguodala. Iguodala's been coming off the bench for a while. He was able to put that ego to the side, but it is very, very much in Harrison Barnes' nature to do whatever the team asks him to do. Um, he's played better as a starter than as a bench player, but uh, in this series, I think that it makes more sense for him to come off the bench. So I think he will. Warriors in five is the official prediction. Zero surprise if they win it in six or seven. Very surprised if the Cavs win, but not completely and totally shocked. How about that for a prediction and hedging your bets? Uh, thanks to everyone if you've listened this far. Uh, very much appreciated, whether it's you're listening for the first time or you've been on board from the start of this here Hoffman show. Uh, you can subscribe on iTunes if you like which here. Uh, there's a, a big fancy button on the right side of the blog page on HoffmanShow.com. takes you right to the iTunes link. You can also search Hoffman Show in the podcasts on your iPhone or on iTunes, however you go on your podcasts. Uh, SoundCloud there as well. See Hoffman223 on SoundCloud. Uh, subscribe to the blog if you are into that kinds of things. Read. Just keep going back to HoffmanShow.com and click around. Just click all over the place. Random clicking. Uh, you follow me on Twitter as well. At Craig Hoffman. That's C-R-A-I-G-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. Thanks again to Dave McManaman. Thanks again to Howard Beck. I will talk to you again later this week, probably Friday, after game one. Let's basketball, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.